I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, I'm here today with Jeff Jones, who is the former leader of Bridge End Council, and these days spends a lot of his time commentating on political events uh, and he's got a long history in the Labour Party and often makes uh, very controversial comments uh, in relation both to what's happening today and what's happened in the past. So Jeff, could you tell me where you're from and what your political roots are and how you became a Labour councillor? Yeah, sure. I'm born and bred in my steg and I uh, went to uh, my steg grammar school, as it was then, from a school called Plas Newydd, and I was very fortunate to have some, some very, very good teachers. And uh, one of my teachers, who was from the Ronda and had been a coal miner, had gone to the LSE uh, to actually attend some through lectures. So I went to the London School of Economics and I read international history. I did, I did some economics as well and... Uh, but I'm your expert on the Baltic in the 19th century, which my wife found very amusing when the Danish programme 1864 came on, how I could explain to her how everything happened. So it, you could say my degree did come in some use, but in my 60s. In terms of political background, my grandfather was from Pembrokeshire, my mother's father, but they had two brothers um, who became chairs of local councils. Uh, when I first became the leader of... Um, Pretend I, I met the leader of uh, Pembrokeshire, who was an independent, and I just mentioned that my grandfather was from a place called Getley in Pembrokeshire, and his, and his brother had lived in Tenby, and he said, who's his brother? And I said, oh, it's Benny Williams, and it, they all went over the moon. I didn't realise that Benny had been the chair of South Pembrokeshire uh, District Council when they were young councillors. Uh, my grandmother sat on the knee of Mr Kerr Hardy, uh, when he came to my stake, her sort of brothers were very left-wing, large chairs of, of the local mine. Her father was killed in 1904 in a very famous or infamous colliery accident, which ended up with the, the man who, who worked the winding engine be given six months hard labour. Well, not hard labour, that was the problem. There were riots over it. The, he pleaded guilty. Um, the two... The prosecutor was the local MP. The defender was another MP. They were both King's Council. My uh, great-grandmother was compensated with £189, which was probably about three or four years' wages. Uh, it was a cover-up. The man didn't have the qualifications to work the engine in my stick deep. Uh, the engine lost control and four men uh, were thrown out of the wagon, and, and including my great-grandfather, and killed. And my grandmother was about a year old when that happened. Uh, her brother... Ozzy, who was a minor, was the first man I ever known to give me a political statement. <laughs> my uncle Oz was a communist. Uh, we were walking one day, and I must have been about five or six, and uh, he said to me, Jeff, never forget Oliver Cromwell. He's a great man. And I said, why is that, Uncle Oz? He cut the king's head off. And I think that's the, the first time. And I also can remember as well in 1959, the 1959 election, the MP for Ogbo then was a guy called Walter Padley, and a friend and I were reprimanded in a bus by an old lady because we were singing, and in those days it's the, the 20th century, but it's still elements of the 19th century in terms of uh, songs. And we were singing Vote, Vote, Vote for Walter Padley, uh, Chuck Old Macmillan in the Sea. If I had a lump of lead, I'd bash him on the head. I joined the Labour Party in 68 when I was a teenager, and I've been a member ever since. I, I, 
basically the Labour Party, like all political parties, has its faults, but it's the only one, in my opinion, that can actually change things. And if people sort of said, how would I describe my politics? I mean, famously, my good friend, uh, the ex-leader of Cardiff, Russell Goodway, said to me, that's your problem. And I said, I'm a pre-1914 socialist. And I still believe that Ke Hardy's short sentence, when he was asked, what is socialism? And he said, it's the sermon in the mouth put into practice. You can't beat that. And as a young man, I, I read a lot of Marx, etc. And if you, if you think which book influenced me, I had a very good history teacher. And she knew I was going to do A-level history. So she said to me in the time between my O-levels, and I'd read. And I picked a book up by Hugh Thomas, who ironically became a peer under Mrs Thatcher, the first book on the Spanish Civil War. Mm. And I was deeply impressed by the bravery of the men and women of not just the, the Spanish Socialist Party, but the Spanish Communist Party. And I then started to read Karl Marx. Um, and I've still got a copy of Das Kapital from 1908, which was the, the copy owned by a former leader of the local council, a guy called Stan Lewis. Uh, his daughter was friendly with my mother, and when, when he died, she said to my mother, will Jeff want this? And it's proudly on my bookshelves now. Uh, along with a number of other books. So, you know, Marx is also an element. You know, I think Marx's analysis of society is good, but I I also think Gramsci, the Italian communist, is very interesting about hegemony, the idea that people control society through thoughts and, and ideas. And I think that's quite interesting, particularly as we move into the 21st century. So these ideas all stem really from your education and uh, from your immersion. In and also from my family background. My, my, family father, background. my father was... You know, on my birth certificate, it's got father's occupation, colliery wine engineer, right? He was a haulage driver underground. Well, what that doesn't say is the background. You know, how did, you know, who was it brought up? My father was born in 1919. His parents were in their 40s. He was the lad they'd always wanted. He had two older sisters who were 16 at the time. Uh, his father was a, an ironmonger who'd lost the business. His father died at a very young age. Um, he didn't have a job. But his mother came from farming stock in the Garo, and they supplied horses to Powell Dufferin. So they were friendly through directors of Powell Dufferin. That's the... Um... That, that's the big coal combine. My, my, my father didn't have a job. As he said to me, he went to get a job on the GWR um, as a porter, and he was told by the station master, we can get grammar school boys to do this. And my father was just an ordinary lad who hadn't passed the, the scholarship or anything like that. Um, his mother wrote to W.M. Llewellyn, one of the directors, and a letter came back um, saying, tell your boy to take this up to the local pit, come to as we call it, St John's. My father took it up. The, the deputy manager accused my father of stealing headed notepaper and having somebody typed the letter out. My father still used to recount to me the famous scene of, no, 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 you know, phone up, phone up. The guy phones up and he says, I can still hear you. Yes, yes. He put the phone down, Jeff, and he said to me, okay, Richard, what job do you want in this pit? And one of my father's friends had told him, haulage driver, brilliant job. You sit there playing with a lever, etc. So my father became a haulage driver and I can vaguely remember we lived in rented accommodation. Uh, my father bathing in, in the tin bath. Uh, we lived in a house with no bath, 
no toilet. Our toilet was outside, uh, just down the road. Um, and when I said to my father, he was just absolutely disgraceful. You know, nationalised industry, you, you didn't have uh, pit dead baths. Oh, it's nothing to do with the NCP, Jeff. We had a vote. And all the old men voted not to have pit dead baths. So they didn't want to be seen naked, which was quite an interesting element. My father was a, was a strong man, and he could give you the strength of that. He, he, one of his friends lost a finger in, in a pit accident um, by using a brush in the hole. My father kept it, went to a tribunal, and they tried to say that my father's friend, it was his fault, and my father proved it wasn't. And as a punishment, they put him on permanent nights, even though my mother was, was a person with a serious health problem. My father then decided to leave mining and go to work in the then Steel Company Wales. He spent a month working in the Steel Company Wales in the day and in the pit in the night. And when he finished, and when the Steel Company said, you've got the job permanent, he went up and just threw his cards and went. But then, that then, and it really annoyed me, came back to haunt him. When he, when he applied under the miners' scheme for compensation, uh, everybody, the consultant came to the house oh Mr Jones you know he failed the test in, in Mountain Ash he was too ill to do it and they all said you're a cert to get compensation what happened I never realised this because there's two legal systems the Scottish one and the England and Welsh one the unions in England and Wales had gone for a cut off date of June 1954 in Scotland it was 1947 so if we'd been living in Scotland my father had been okay he'd left the pit in January 54 so he was, even though he'd worked from the 19, early 1930s to 1954, had nothing. And I, I mentioned it to a couple of, uh, to my local MP, and he just didn't understand. It, I, I wasn't on about my father. He didn't need the money or whatever, right? It was the injustice that miners in England and Wales were being treated differently from other miners in the UK. What was that about? They were all members of the National Union of Mine Workers, and yet, because of different legal systems, it was absolutely crazy. So my father was a strong man, and you know, and he always taught me. And we were brought up as typical Welsh nonconformists. Dare to be a Daniel, you know. When you believe in something, you stick at it. You don't change your mind. You stick at it. Doesn't matter what the. If you think you're right, he used to say to me, "If you think you're right, and you're helping other people, stick to it." And I've always believed that, even though very often people have said to me, "Why don't you keep your mouth shut?" You know. Uh, the classic case was when I was a young councillor, I lost the whip in Middle Morgan, and a guy who I liked said to me, why can't you do the normal thing? I said, what's that, uh, Trevor? Go in the toilet when the vote's taken. Hmm. I said, I can't do that, I didn't believe in it. And so I've always been in the left, you know. So when I was a young Middle Morgan councillor, the, the first meeting I went to, they used to have a dinner afterwards because being a county councillor was seen as very important. The guest speaker was Will Painter. Because the mining leader, yeah, the mining leader. Because Walter Bowen, the then chair, had, his father had been victimised and was a friend of Painter. So Phil Squire, the leader, got up in the speech and proposed the loyal toast. Two people remained seated: Mr. Painter, the guest speaker, and myself. So after the, the dinner had finished, he came over and he always really shook my hand. He said. Nice to see a young comrade still keeping the flame going. I always remember that. And I'm still, you know, I'm still a Republican, you know, and I've always believed that. So the thing is, uh, Jeff, with all this family background, with your education, it was obvious that you were completely steeped in Labour. 
Yeah, if I speak to other people who come from applied background, if you like, their perception of Valley's Labour would be very different. It wouldn't be uh, of a party that was standing up for the oppressed. It would be a party that was uh, in power for a very long time, uh, which had allowed petty corruption and sometimes more serious corruption to take place in its ranks. Uh, were you aware of that kind of irregularity going on? Oh, I plenty. Look, I represent an ward called My Stick East, right? My Stick East uh, was involved in one of the most famous corruption cases of the 1970s, the Uni Westwood case. Westwood was sent to jail for taking a bribe for building and uh, converting a, a miners' agent's home into a nightclub in my sig east. One of my proudest boasts as well is that all the old boys in Middle Morgan used to say that if I had been the county councillor, Ernie would still be free, would have, wouldn't have gone to jail because he wouldn't have dared take a bribe in my ward. So that does happen, right? And there is absolutely no doubt that teachers' positions and people joined the Labour Party to to get on etc look all the all the, the, the head posts in Mid Glamorgan were all decided before the meeting it's the same thing you know we had, we had a deputy director's position and my officer and again it was a lovely man right was Rhys Williams R.H. Williams who played second row for Wales and the Lions who won the famous line out in the last test in 1959 in New Zealand against Colin Meads Reese was a lovely guy. Reese was going up against somebody else and he didn't have a very good interview. And the man sitting next to me said, that man hasn't got a, ch- a chance. And I said, watch the vote. Reese lost the position by one vote. I didn't vote for Reese because I didn't think he was the best man for the job. And the guy turned to me and said, how did he get so many votes? I said, because... He's the finest second row to play for Wales since the Second World War. I said, this is not about, you know, Midland Morgan had a director who was an active Labour Party member and who said to me uh, when I was pushing for tertiary education in Midland Morgan, which I thought was the right way, oh, he can't have this, he said. I said, why not, Ken? He can't have it, he said. We lose every seat in the Ronda. I said, what's that to do with you? I said, you're supposed to be director of education. You're supposed to be doing things which is right... For the, the kids' education. No. And so there's that, that element. Ken Hopkins, was it? Ken, yeah, Ken Hopkins. Yeah. There is that potential. It's a one party state issue. It, it's a simple fact is that basically politics in the South Wales Valleys finished in the 1920s. And a number of mistakes were then made. Bright working class people, too many in my opinion, joined the Communist Party. There's a historian called Walter Kendall who argued that was a huge mistake. And I agree with Kendall. They should have stayed in. The Labour Party and fought for socialism but they thought you know the Soviet Union was the future and, and, and so on and they wasted their time in the British Communist Party so very bright men what then came in to fill the gap were ex-liberals who would oppose the Labour Party before 1914 and people who just saw it as a means for status power whatever you didn't make any money out of it um, and the result then and of course what they also then did and they still do it to a certain extent is because British trade unionism was illegal at one time, they developed the idea of you stick together. It's very much 
a, a communist attitude, democratic centralism. We, in Middle Morgan, we used to have some fantastic debates in, in the Labour group, passionate debates. But once the debate was over, even if you'd lost by one vote, that was it. And hence, when people then came down to County Hall to say there was no debate, somebody would get up, I moved the resolution, I seconded it, the opponents would be, uh, you know, vociferous, and people would say, well, this is ridiculous. All the best arguments have come from the other side, and yet look at the vote. And we've come all the way down here to stop our school closing or to do this. That This isn't democracy. Um, they didn't work out that you needed, a, you know, in a one-party state, you need a bit of a latitude. You, 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 know, you need to be a bit like Dubček in the Prague Spring. You shouldn't be afraid of discussion. And I think there's this attitude of you're helping the enemy. No, you're not. I mean, you know, people want politicians. And I think, to be iron- ironically, that's what people like Jeremy Corbyn. Because he does allow discussion to a certain extent. You know, he is an, an unusual man. He says what he thinks. He's criticised for it. But people respect that, even if they disagree with it. What they don't like are politicians who don't give an answer, who don't seem to understand what ordinary people are, are feeling or will say one thing and then do something else when they get elected and hence the disillusionment that colours so many people's views of politics today. And yet if we look at the South Wales Valleys there's still an enormous amount of poverty there isn't there and more so than was the case when the mines were working. There are, there are those who would say that Labour is to blame for that. How do you respond to that? I don't think Labour is to blame. I think what is to blame is, is, is a failure to actually realise that the South Wales Valleys developed very quickly and the day a coal mine dies is the first day that, mine, that coal is brought up to the surface. And there was this idea that you couldn't face the fact that one day it wouldn't be there. So what you, what you had was, was from between 1960 and the, basically the end of the 1980s, this 30-year decimation. And nobody said, hang on, hang on, let's look for something that, that could change this. And this pit isn't going to last for it. There was, there was this always, oh, we can keep the mine. There's loads of coal there, which is quite true. But it's coal that can't be extracted economically. So, you know, they, they weren't going to survive. Uh, and if you just said that, I mean, I, I can remember being in a Labour Party meeting where a friend of mine whose wife was Dutch, and this was before the slim down in the steelworks, he got up because Hoogervans were already amalgamating in Holland and said, look, there's a real issue. There's a lot too much steel in Europe already. Things are going to change. He was howled down by the representatives of the Steelworkers Union. Instead of them saying, oh, hang on, this is interesting. We, we should prepare for this. You know, so you didn't get what somebody described in the 80s as preemptive trade unionism. You, you've got defensive trade unionism. You, you've got people sort of saying, oh, we can't think up new ideas. And the reality then, of course, is, is that because of the welfare state, the mines valleys stayed as they are. I mean, if it had been in, in a non-welfare state culture, they'd be what? They'd be ghost towns now. They'd be people who would have left, left the area, people who have left the area. And nobody's come up with the idea of, hang on, uh, let's have a, an interesting view of future society. There are people today, ironically, and I meet some of them through Twitter, who are not, some are in the Labour Party. I think there's some very good economists in Cardiff University, some young fairly youngish people who were thinking about new ideas and thinking, oh, hang on, let's have work closer to where we are. I mean, I think, 
you know, I look at Cardiff today, and recently there's, there was a fuss about a week ago what some Cardiff councillors said about places having no purpose and whatever. And if you analyse what they're saying, these were Cardiff councillors, I know a couple of them, who are concerned, not just about Cardiff, about the bigger picture. And what they were saying is, if you read very carefully, they were saying these were places which had a purpose, but now have no purpose. That our job should be is to give them a purpose again, not expect everybody to come down on the train to Cardiff. Well, that has been the strategy, hasn't it, for the last few years? And this but it's is wrong. It's what it's all about, isn't it? The, the, the idea is, I mean, the, the presumption is that you're not going to get inward investment in the valleys. So what you do is you create more jobs in Cardiff for people to come down on the train and work in Cardiff and abandon employment. And what you, then, what you then get is that uh, people then will start moving to Cardiff. So the, the Cardiff people complain. You know, I often go to the BBC studios, and I went the other week, and you, you look at the, 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 the road coming in through towards Landiff now, with all those huge housing developments. That is going to be an absolute nightmare. And it's no good talking about cycle lanes and buses, etc. People will be jumping in their cars. And that's going to be absolute chaos. You know, even if the developer puts a bus stop in or, or subsidises a bus service. We've got in my stake, and it always annoys me, a huge ex-factory site. And in some ways, it sums up what's wrong with the valleys. That site had Louis Edwards, where my mother used to work, doing what? Making very good shirts for Marks and Spencers. Next door, Revlon. I worked there for a year. If it's the best, it must be Revlon, said Charles Revson. Right? You know, I watched the Queen Mother's Christmas box being put together one year. You know, we worked for the, the sales in Harrods, etc. If you bought a lipstick in Europe, it was made in Revlon. If you bought perfume, I mean, okay, it, it was great, you know, it was a good experience for me. It, it's an interesting story. Revlon produced a new perfume called Charlie. Uh, it was. My boss was in a, a dance in my stick town hall, and one of the women said to him, Elvert, this new perfume is outstanding, just Charlie. And I said, uh, what's wrong, Elvert? Uh, we're not due to launch it to the world for another four months, and that they were all using it in Abergwynvy, because people used to steal stuff. It was quite uh, an amusing... Uh, I, w- I used to work in the stores for... <laughs> Uh, for a year, um, and I used to be, my job was to use an old computer printout to find out if what was left. And I remember telling the manager one day, he went, maybe look for something called Norel, which was a very expensive Revlon perfume. And I used to climb up in the storeroom and I said, uh, Do you want the good news first, Cled? What's that, Jeff? I found the box and he went, Yes. He said, What's the bad news then? There's nothing in it. <laughs> it was uh, all property is theft, I think, was the attitude. But next to it then was Cooper Standard. You know, Silent Channel, as it's still called. You drove a, a Land Rover. All the rubber exclusions were there. You drove the first Polo made in Bratislava. They've all gone. It's flattened. You could put Inland Revenue. You could put the BBC. You could put anything on that site. It's next to, a, next to the railway station, which I used this morning. It's only 40 minutes from Cardiff. Now, if you want to regenerate the valleys, if people can come down the line, they can also go up the line. We're only 10 minutes from the motorway. You know, I mean, 6,000 revenue jobs in a town like my stake would transform it. If people like Jim Callahan, Harold Wilson were still in government, they'd be telling the revenue, go to my stake, go to Merthyr. 
go to Ebro Vale. Why isn't that happening now? I think, well, I think it wouldn't happen with this government, but I, I can't understand why it's not happening. You know, Jim Callan directed the Royal Mint. The Royal Mint was based in London. It's in South Wales because of political decision to, to regenerate it. Ford is in South Wales because of that Labour government. You know, it's. I read an interesting article uh, only this week by a guy called Bernard Donoghue, who was one of my lecturers in the LSE, and was a very good lecturer, and who ended up as Wilson's advisor, and he wrote a, a lecture on Wilson. And he used to write Wilson's speeches, and Wilson said, look, I don't want any guardianisms. I want what the working class want. And what you had, you say, I think, with those Labour politicians, they had, they had their faults, but they came from a certain background. They'd seen the 30s, the 40s, the poverty, the real poverty. In my opinion, and it won't be very popular, there's too much identity politics now. All right? And I know the working class is different today. You know, And you might argue, we haven't got a working class, we've got an enlarged lumpen proletariat, but they're there to be helped. You know, And they're not interested in feminism, they're not interested in transgender, what they are interested in, what Wilson was interested in, jobs. They want, in terms of the world, they want peace. Yeah, so they like Corbyn, you'd be people who'd be quite surprised. They don't want to be fighting the Russians or, or having an argument with Russia, you know. For them, that's a country far away. They want jobs, they want peace, they want decent education for for their kids. What do they want? They want when they are ill, they want the, the the hospital to give them the best treatment possible. When they're old, they want decent social care. You know, that's all they want. And that's what the Labour Party is about, or should be about. It it shouldn't be about the isms that the, the and I think that's the other problem, that you have all these middle-class people who say, I'm a socialist, they haven't got a clue. They haven't got a clue about the real world. You know, I'm all for electing women. The women I want to elect are the women who queue up in front of me in oldies, who do know what the price of a loaf of bread is in oldies, or a pint of milk, who do struggle. You know, and we've got some of them in the Labour Party, right? There's a, there's a woman who I'm very impressed with called Angela Rayner, you know, who come up the hard way. Right, and it's not forgot her roots, you know. And the same token, you can be middle class, but the middle class people in the past were people like Clem Attlee, you know, who worked in the East End, who became a councillor in the East End. They saw the poverty, you know. I mean, I look at my hometown today, and it, it, I'm boiling. This, this, where's the anger? Where, where's the, where, where's the anger? And so I say, look, this can't go on, you know. Why are we wasting money on on certain things and not spending on the right things? How do you think Labour has performed as the party of government for nearly 20 years in Cardiff Bay? It hasn't had a vision. And it it, it ends up then looking like managerialism. And it ends up looking like the name of the game is to stay in power. I think um, a huge mistake was made for the desperation to stay in power uh, by going into coalition with Plaid and with other people. I think it would have done Labour a world of good to have had four or five years in opposition, where it could have had the freedom to think, work out its ideas, bring new people in, etc. Instead, what you're dealing with all the time is day-to-day management, crisis, etc. And, uh, and like you know, one ex-cabinet minister said to me, who I knew reasonably well, that at one point it looked as if Labour wouldn't still stay in government, and he said to me, "It's not worth me being down here, Jeff." All he was interested in was being a cabinet minister, you know, uh, and I think that's the problem. Nobody sat down in 1999 because the trouble is, it's that nobody would worked out what they wanted to achieve. 
and you still get that feeling of uh, we want more powers powers to do what so they've had lawmaking powers you know give us the tools to finish the job was the slogan in that referendum where hardly anybody bothered to vote right what what law you know think about it logically how why should Wales have different law, you know why should my cousin's kids in North Devon have different laws to my children it's not logical it's, you know, it, it, it's, it, it doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't mean you change anything. In Scotland, they've just repealed a law that they passed. There's a danger, if you're not very careful, of getting into the mechanics of government instead of actually realising what is government about. It's about improving people's lives. But isn't that question really about how one perceives Wales? Because there are those who would say, from a nationalist perspective, that Wales is a nation in its own right and therefore has a has the responsibility to make its own laws. Well, yeah, if you're a nationalist, right? You know, where do I come from on that? Right, well, to me, I think the American professor in Aberystwyth before the First World War, he got it right. A guy called Zimmern, the first professor of international politics in Aber, and he said there are three Waleses, and he talked about English Wales, and what he meant was that was South Pem, the border areas, Herefordshire, and, and and whatever. And you listen to, you know, Powys County Councillors; they speak with a Hereford burr. Um, and he was talking then about Welsh Wales, and then he meant he meant places where they spoke Welsh as a first language: North Pembrokeshire, Mid Wales, North Wales, parts of the valleys. Then, and then he thought about America Wales, which is the valleys, because what are that? What did America Wales remind him of? It reminded him of Pennsylvania. It reminded me of, you know, you you had someone who could start off as a shopkeeper and end up as a millionaire, first Lord Merthyr. You you had the brutality of capitalism, of wealth on the one hand for a minority and the majority who produced the wealth uh, in appalling conditions. Because whenever I go to the National Museum of Wales and I see the Renoirs, I wish there was a big sign up there which said, paid for by the blood and sweat of the miners of Wales. Yes, Top Sawyer, their father, might have been the organiser, but the people who worked for him were the ordinary working class, and they worked in pretty appalling conditions for sometimes awful money, and they died at a very young age. They paid for the Renoirs. You know, nothing, there's no, nothing to say about... David about, Davis. Yeah, David Davis, you know, Top Sawyer. You know, Developer Lardier. of Barry Docks. Yeah, Barry Docks. His statue's outside Barry Docks, you know. And he's a very, you know, t- and you can imagine, you know, the famous story when he's in the Ronda and he's digging for coal, it's like exploring and they can't find any. And he calls all the sinkers in and he says, I've got to finish. And somebody at the back shouts, you know, what have you got left? And allegedly he pulls out a half crown coin. I've got a half a crown. We'll toss it here, we'll give you another day's. And the rest is history when they hit the rich seams. But, you know, he didn't extract the coal. You know, they extracted the coal, um, the, the, the miners, etc. And I think it's this sort of attitude of uh, Wales now is the same. English Wales, you know, majority of people don't speak Welsh, they speak English. The culture is, is very much a mid-Atlantic culture, especially in a digital world where you have Amazon, Netflix and, and whatever. Um, then you have Welsh Wales, and you have people who are very passionate, and I'm a classic example of that. I've got four grandparents, three of them, Welsh was their first language. I don't speak Welsh, 
uh, even though I went to a Welsh chapel because my mother disagreed with the minister. My two grandsons will both be fluent in Welsh. They go to Welsh, the, the oldest one goes to Welsh nursery and they'll go to Welsh school and they'll speak Welsh. Um, you know, and uh, goodness only knows what their politics w- will be. But you've still got America, Wales, because it's like, still like Pennsylvania, it's Rust Belt, Wales now. Like, like Pennsylvania, it's declining. Now, in Pennsylvania, in a truly capitalist, you can understand what happens, but in, we haven't handled that decline properly. We haven't sort of worked out, hang on, you know, and it all looks all every time we're reinventing the wheel, where I think very often regeneration is quite simple stuff. Uh, it, it's two elements. One is the infrastructure, you know, so we're now talking about the metro, etc. What, 20, you know, you go to Europe, they've, you know, you go to a uh, transport museum in Berlin and you'll see electric trains from the 30s. It's not the new technology, what are you on about? And it's education. You know, we should be pouring money because what people don't understand, it's particularly middle class people because they make so many assumptions. And it, it hit home to me when I was a young county councillor, when I talked to a nursery head in my valley, in the toughest part of the valley, and I said, what are the children like? She said, um, a lot of them don't speak. I said, what, what, what do you mean don't speak? They can't speak English, Jeff. They come to our nursery school, they can't communicate. You know, I, I'm, I'm still a governor of a school and I was in a governor's meeting and I'll honestly say this with the school, the young female teachers are absolutely brilliant, totally committed. You know, I was a teacher and a lecturer. The work they put in is unbelievable. And they were talking about... Uh, having to shake hands with children to develop social skills, eye contact. The kids all had mobile phones, they all played Xboxes, etc. But they were going into their world, you know, and we should be pouring money into education. You know, we shouldn't be cutting education. You know, I know there are conflicting stuff, but money should be being poured into education, etc. It's it's simple stuff. Um, You know, if you want to regenerate something, you know, Singapore has got no natural resources. Yet it's quite a, a wealthy, can, small country. Why? Because of the Lee Kuan Yew. Okay, he's not a Democrat, but his idea was education. And and you've got also the ethos, the Chinese ethos. You know, that's what we're missing as well, because what happens is the work ethos starts to, to go. You know, you know it, I, I, I canvassed in the part of my valley with, with Angela Eagle, right? This is a part of the valley, it's been a community first area, has had millions poured into it. Angela said to me two things. This was half past three on a Friday afternoon. First thing was, has anybody spent any money up here? The second thing was, she says, do they dress? Because she was knocking doors with people still in their pyjamas. Because if you're not going to work, if you haven't got, you know, why, why dress? You know, and you see it as well in the school holidays. You don't see anybody around. You know, and you read stuff about uh, kids are unhealthy and whatever. You know, my old man was eighty-seven. He walked everywhere. It's it's and and I, I also strongly believe as well is teaching how to live. And uh, I think we don't do that. You know, I think the twenty-first century is going to be a very difficult century. You know, so it's interesting. One again, I read an article this week. Uh, Silicon Valley, the the boys who run the tech world, the best private school in Silicon Valley. Nobody is allowed any technical equipment below the age of 11. They teach knitting, they teach cooking, they teach how to make go-karts. Their parents are the ones who made the computer 
and do the programming and whatever, right? They, they've obviously got into something. And yet we assume that because we're teaching coding and we're doing this, ah, we're up there, etc., right? You know, health-wise, we have the blue zones. Hang on, food banks. You know, I lived through the 50s and 60s, never saw a food bank. Period poverty. You know, I'm a father of, of two daughters. I'd be ashamed. You know, because it's the other element of socialism, the responsible element. You know, if you look at the old early socialists and care, it was about improving yourself. You read, you 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 acted in a proper way. That's working class, right? You know, when you came to Cardiff, I always let you know. I say to my wife, she says, "You got a Cardiff today?" She said, "Yeah, I got clean pants on." The first thing my mother said to me before I went to an international match, "Have you got clean pants on?" And I said, "Why are you saying that, man? What if I have an accident?" You never wanted the people to see, even if you were poor. You wore a suit. My father never went out without a suit on. You know, it's it's an attitude to life. It's wearing a tie. It's an attitude to life. I'm looking good. I'm as good as them. You know, you can never take it away from me. And I think that's what we're missing as well. Pride in ourselves. Working class pride. Um, we shouldn't assume that food banks, period, poverty. You should be asking, what, what's this about? You know, I, I, my parents would have gone with and they did go without to provide me with what I should have and that's the way I brought it I've been brought up my kids get everything before me you know and that's what it should be about so that's what it should be about you know it's it I made a big mistake once uh, building the Royal Mint my uh, I worked in the summer as they were building it my father's brother got me a job there I went out drinking on a Saturday night and I missed the Sunday shift which was double time my father pulled me in and he said if it comes a choice between drink and working you work don't you ever do that again he said and I never have do you regret not having become an assembly member because I know that that at one time was an aspiration of yours and I remember talking to Ron Davis when he was the Secretary of State for Wales Mm -hmm. and he told me that if you had been elected to the assembly that if he was the what became first minister he would have had you in his cabinet well you know you can't look back on life i mean uh, people have said to me why didn't i become an mp and, and so on um somebody asked me when in college why why haven't you stood for mp and i i, I can't be a bit facetious i said i'm not a, i said i'm happily married i didn't marry my wife to spend four days in london an appalling life right um i said i'm not a womanizer i'm not an alcoholic and i'm not gay so, you know, uh, I don't want to spend my time up there. I thought the assembly would be interesting. It, it, it didn't work work out for various reasons. People uh, obviously didn't want me to be an assembly member. I mean, I was rejected when I filled the form in because I didn't put enough about equality on, even though I was the person in charge of access courses for women. And when I told the females in my then group that I'd be rejected, they just burst out laughing. You were rejected by the Central Labour Party? Oh, I, I, it, by it, Welsh Labour. By Welsh Labour, it wasn't the Central Labour Party. And then we had the uh, amusing situation where the regional seats came up. And so, so, well, before that, then, there was this twinning lark. So we were twinned with the Ronda. This is when they were twinning in order to... Yeah, female uh, or whatever. Gender and, balance. And the powers that be decided who they wanted as the candidate. 
on the Tuesday night we had the, the Ronda Hustings and I must have done quite well because I'm not being big headed I, I can be quite persuasive on my feet and I have a reputation of being quite passionate and making it which, which would go down very well with older Labour people I then applied for a regional seat um, and we went down to City Hall in the Bay um, National Executive uh, were deciding the lists uh, I was placed on top of the list um, one constituency told the meeting if Jeff Jones is on top of the list we will not approve any of the lists so I was then thrown off the whole list now if you ask how did I know that because one of the Labour Party officials who was there was so upset she phoned me in the night and said, said I'm so sorry I'm so sorry what's happened but you know you can't look back it's sort of uh, uh, you have your enemies within the party. Oh, crikey. I mean, you know, the old saying uh, of the MP, when the, the young MP is glaring at the Tories, what are you looking at? I'm looking at the enemies. No, that's the opposition. The enemies are all... They hated me. I've always got on quite well, actually, with um, my my so-called political opponents. I mean, if you talk to people, some people imply don't like me, uh, particularly if I get one over them, but a lot of people implied like me. Uh, Tories find me straight. I mean, I was always got on very well with Peter Hubbard Miles, who did come up with a. Who was the MP for Virginia? the first first MP for Virginia, who did tell uh, an old Labour man, he said, which I thought was quite interesting. He said, "Always remember with Jeff." He said, "It's always a death or glory right," <laughs> which, given the fact I like military history, death and glory was a, a famous Prussian charge in the Battle of uh, of Koningsgratz. Um, he probably summed me up. I mean, you know, I I. If I didn't win, I didn't win. I've always played hard, but I've always had a rugby view of once the game's over, you're a pint, I'm quite friendly. I've never held any personal grudges. I just, what's, the, what's the point? I think, you know, I I don't suffer fools gladly and that comes across. I have an awful tendency as well of laughing. Um, a civil servant said to me one day, we always used to look at your face to see what was happening. And he said, we were in one meeting and you were scowling. And we thought, oh my God, what's gone wrong, right? And I burst out laughing. I said, no, I was sleeping. I said, so boring. Alan Michael was rolling on. I said, it's, you know, I, I used to find things quite amusing. I still do. But when you were the leader of Bridge End Council, there was um, a strange incident, wasn't there, where there was some strange package that turned... Well, given that we, we're now in, in... People are getting these packages. And, it, and all joking apart, so it, it, it's appalling, right? This was during the anthrax issue. Um, the local press didn't pick it up because they didn't, at the time, the editor didn't get on with me. It was a, it's a story they missed. I wasn't in the council offices at the time. I was um, working because I was a part-time leader. And my secretary phoned me up and said, uh, a package has arrived. Uh, and my first reaction was, oh, it's addressed to me. Uh, and I thought, oh, great for them. But what was appalling, Martin, right, was what happened after that. The package was opened up and white powder came out. Immediately, there was panic because in, in the papers there was anthrax and whatever. The council officers were evacuated. The fire brigade was called, the police were called. Uh, in Angel Street, they set up emergency showers. Six members of staff, including a couple of young women who were petrified, had to be showered down. The letter was sent to Porton Down, 
Which is the government's... Um, uh, chemical, because they didn't know what was in the powder, right, you know, etc. Chemical, so it's a chemical warfare. Yeah, chemical it? warfare. Basically what was in the plumbing thing was talcum powder, right? The fool who sent it to me had printed inside, Jeff, if this don't kill you, something else will. But then in his temper had signed my name with his handwriting. So obviously the police were involved. So the first thing they asked me was, um, did anybody dislike me? And I said, have you got a month, fortnight, whatever, you know, right? Because uh, I just couldn't care, seriously. I don't feel angry about it. I do feel angry uh, about it because of the stuff. Not for me, you know, didn't affect me, I wasn't there. Um, you know what, what? What's the problem? But the girls, the women, you know, the, the, the humiliation of being stripped naked, showered, the frightening experience. They didn't know it was talcum powder. You know, like people in Salisbury were frightened, and still are frightened. It's an it's a terrorist act, you know, but an act by someone who obviously had real at that point serious mental issues because nobody in their right mind does something like that. Doesn't matter how much you dislike someone. You also got into quite a bit of trouble, didn't you, Jeff? Uh, towards the end of your leadership of the council, uh, in relation to uh, some correspondence about a child abuse inquiry. Mm. Tell us about that. Well, basically, um, person accused of the of the abuse, John Owen, had worked for Whitlam Morgan, um, and I knew a bit of the background. Uh, because my daughter did A-level Welsh and they used a series called Pam Vidu and I as a, as a counsellor had heard about this teacher who'd left under a cloud and what, and what people don't realise when he did leave it's not like now there's no teacher council there's no retrospective stuff he's no longer an employee so it's no good saying we have issues with this character he doesn't work for us anymore uh, what can we do? We can't do anything. Legally, we can't do anything. So he's gone. So I can actually remember saying, when I saw his name on Palmyra, oh, that's where he's ended up, right? Basically, when the inquiry started, and in my opinion, I still believe it, the inquiry was a shambles. Peter Clark was out of his depth. That was the Children's Commission. Yeah, completely out of his depth. Um, they started off where there was no cross-examination, and then when it came to the Midland Organ officers, the former director of education, who was a really good guy, my then director of education, who had been the district education officer, and because uh, the school was a Welsh school, the clerking was done by the district ed education officer. Uh, and they were given a, a hammer in. Um, and I thought it was very unfair, and typical of me again, people would, a lot of people would have said, keep your nose out of it. And I really thought that they were getting at the wrong people. Uh, so I wrote a, a private letter to the then First Minister, Rodri Morgan. Private letter. He could have written back to me and said, thanks for your letter, Jeff. I can't do anything about it. Uh, he didn't do that, did he? He handed it on to Clark. And I'm convinced that they panicked because they'd already worked out who was to blame. It was the former Director of Education, Rodri Morgan, and my director. And I... Because I had a reputation, I'm not prepared to, to sort of take things like lying down. I could ruin all of this. 
So I was called before Clark um, to give new evidence. Well, I didn't have any new evidence, I let her. So I said, and with the threat, I, it was my 25th wedding anniversary. We were going to Barcelona. Uh, it didn't spoil my trip, it spoiled my wife's trip. Um, I'm in Bristol Airport, I get a phone call from the BBC. Oh, you're going to be treat- done for contempt and all this. They'd already told the BBC. Why would you be under contempt? Um, interfering with an inquiry. You tell me about that, right? Uh, I said, look, I've got an holidays. You know, do you want to come and talk? No, I've got all. I've got it's my anniversary. For God's sake! Uh, and I had been concerned about my director, Dave Matthews, who was a lovely guy, right? And I thought Dave wasn't treating it seriously. Um, so what then happens is they. I'm then advised to get legal advice, so and to do it very quickly. So I got a solicitor through my contacts, and I, well, I had a very, very good barrister from England, um, a guy called Greg Trevedon Jones, who's uh, now a judge. He was absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant man. Um, and he advised me, don't go. So I was on, on legal advice, I didn't go. They still went ahead, and it was a bit like the Soviet Union. There was a desk with Jeff Jones on it and nobody there. All that was missing was uh, Vashinsky ranting and raving about the enemies of the people and how Comrade Stalin had been such a good guy and these enemies of the people had done him down. So what then happens was they decided I, they decided to send off to Lord Goldsmith so the Attorney General could prosecute me. But he decided not to. They're in a bit of quandary now, aren't they? So they then go ahead. Now... They tried to prosecute you. Yeah, they, they went ahead. Clark was advised and his deputy commissioner was a solicitor to go ahead and um, prosecute you for contempt. So, of course, if you look at the contempt laws, and this was the, the pressure my family were under, you know, I can honestly say people who know me well would say I wasn't under pressure. You know, if I'd been a single man, I couldn't give a damn. But one of the things is, if you do that, you can go to jail for two years. I mean, only this week, a guy has been, an 83-year-old man has been jailed for 14 months for contempt. You know, the judge didn't want to do it, but the contempt was so serious. Um, and that was my, my, my daughters were being told, your dad's going to go to jail. My wife uh, was very worried about it all, etc. My, my parents were still alive. They, my, my mother was petrified. Uh, it, it was an appalling uh, mental situation on the whole family. I was confident with, um, and my wife was. I said, "Look, we've got a good guy, got a good barrister. Don't worry, don't worry about it. I've done nothing wrong." We they wouldn't release Goldsmith's reply. So basically, um, my trial, which was conducted in in the courts down here, was was very much. I, I did go in the dock, and I was. Uh, cross-examined by uh, QC for the Children's Commissioner. But my, my, my sort of barrister conducted a brilliant defence from an academic point of view. He was citing cases from 1834 involving Ludlow Town Council. It, it was brilliant. I kept it. It was fantastic. Um, and I annoyed some of my family by being more interested in the intellectual arguments and the, the danger I was supposedly in. Well, basically, I uh, was found not to occur to contempt. But straight away, one of the other side jumps up and demands that I don't get any costs paid, which you might think is a bit unfair. The judge doesn't agree with that entirely, but only awards me half my costs, so it costs me £10,000, 
which I didn't have. Um, I had to, my father had to give it to me, right? Um, and he said in his summing up, we'll never know why the Attorney General didn't prosecute. Oh, yes, we did know. Because in the September, I was went to a WLGA, though I wasn't a councillor, and I met the, the then chief executive of um, Pembrokeshire, and I said, I, I was really curious, I said, about Goldsmith's letter. Well, he said, uh, I, I, I can't remember, I don't think it was the Freedom of I think it was the Data Protection Act. He said, use the data, use, no, it was the Freedom of Information. He said, use that, he said, Jeff, write a letter to Clark and get it. So I wrote a letter. It would be the Data Protection Act, I yeah, think. Yeah, well, I wrote a letter. And said, I want to see uh, the Attorney General's letter. They refused. Not only did they refuse, they wrote to Goldsmith asking him to agree that the letter shouldn't be released. He said, No way, release the letter. That's what involved me. So I got the letter. I didn't do anything with it. You might say, Why did Because the psychological effect on my whole family was so bad. It, to the day I die, I remember the famous sentence. Lord Goldsmith said, I have consulted the top contempt lawyer in the UK. In his opinion, Councillor Jones has not uh, committed contempt, even though his language, his, you know, his words might be a bit strong. I therefore advise you not to go ahead with a contempt case. So the senior law le- officer in, the U- in the England and Wales was advising them and they still went ahead now people should ask why people should ask why you know it's because they were frightened of what I was going to say it was an attempt to silence me and that's why and off the point I will never agree to a separate criminal jurisdiction for Wales because there are too many people in this part of the world who know each other you're a lot easier to silence Jeff Jones thanks very much Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.